is an Odyssey original. This is KNX Ian Depp. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you know, last week, Mike, we were talking about uh, the Academy Awards, and we were, I think, sort of wondering whether they would be interesting. Ended the show Friday saying it's probably going to be boring because I said they already gave away the wrong best picture. What else yeah. could happen, right? What else could happen? Well, uh, anybody listening to this, unless you are or have just emerged from a coma, you know what happened with uh, Will Smith and with Chris Rock. And here is that bite from last night's show. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked out of me. Did, Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I could, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. <laughs> Now, the Academy has condemned uh, Smith's actions and started a formal review into what happened. So we go in-depth into all this and the Oscar show last night. So uh, we begin with, we have uh, Matt Bellany, co-founder of the website Puck News. He was in the audience at the Oscars last night. Also with us is Rachel Frise, who's an attorney and managing partner at Zweibach, Frise and Coleman. Both of you, thanks for uh, being with us. Matt, let, let's start with you. Give us a, a sort of brief sense of, since you were in the audience, what the reaction was there. I'm sure most people thought it was a bit, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was laughing when he said the joke, and then it looked like Will Smith was coming up on stage to do a little faux fight with him. Chris Rock even says, uh-oh, you know. And then when the slap happened, all of us in the audience just went, silent and then when will smith started screaming it was like you could hear a pin drop nobody knew what was going on we couldn't believe what we were seeing and the oscars came out with a statement this morning saying you know we don't uh, condone any of this but of course he still won best picture still gave a speech now there's a second step this formal review what does that mean when they say that if we even know what that means it just means under their bylaws they have a procedure where there, there are incidents where members do you know have uh, controversy, they will formally review it. They could, you know, they're an arts organization. They're not the police. They're not the civil courts. They could, you know, take away his Oscar if they wanted to. They could ban him from future events. Um, I don't think they're going to do either of those things. I think they will probably, you know, maybe suspend him for a few months, which ultimately means nothing. But, you know, this is a big problem for them because the Academy allowed him to sit there for 20 minutes after the incident, like nothing had happened, and then get up on stage and give a long speech in which he tried to explain himself. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, I, I mean, just watching that last night, and you have to wonder what's going through the minds of the people who are in that audience, a lot of them very famous people, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're standing up, they're giving him an ovation for winning the award, but as if... They what didn't see what had just happened moments before. I mean, are they that 
dense? Well, I don't think people in the room knew what to do. This has never happened before. Nobody's even thought about this. And it was like, what else do you do? You just go on with the show. Nobody was paying attention. Nobody was thinking about it. I mean, they had some big moments. The Godfather reunion, Kevin Costner. You know, they had some great moments, but nobody was really paying that close attention. And the Academy, I mean, there was a debate backstage, I am told, of what to do. But ultimately, they decided to just keep on trucking, get through the show, not, you know, potentially cause even bigger of, a, of an incident by trying to remove him from his seat and then deal with it afterwards. Rachel, uh, legal implications. Let's start and then we'll pick this up on the other side with you. But uh, obviously the LAPD says, well, we're not going to do anything because nothing has been brought to us by Chris Rock. Um, but also, it's not like we all didn't watch this happen right in front of our eyes. Right. So the LAPD, or more likely, this would be a misdemeanor. So it's the city attorney's office that would bring charges if charges were to be brought. And they're unlikely to do anything without Chris Rock making a report. Now, I will tell you, as an attorney who used to represent the academy, there are a lot of lawyers in that audience. And the city attorney's office, or at least representatives from the city's city attorney's office, are always on site at the Oscars and ready to make arrests. But generally, those arrests relate to people trying to get into the Oscars. So there were plenty of lawyers on scene last night. Comedians speaking out against Will Smith's uh, slap. And uh, apparently uh, there's one report that a lot of A-listers were consoling Chris Rock at one of the after Oscar parties last night. Kathy Griffin tweeting that she's worried now about people who want to be the next Will Smith in comedy clubs and theaters. Back with us, Matt Bellany, co-founder of the website Puck News, attorney Rachel Frizay, and Brian Copeland will join us. He's a comedian, actor, and author based in the Bay Area. Rachel, I have another question for you about the legal uh, stuff here, because a number of people online pointed out that just because somebody who has assaulted, and this was actually assault and battery, was it not because uh, he was actually hit, uh, uh, Chris Rock, that you don't have to necessarily file a report because it's a crime really against the state, if you will. It's against the people. So my question to you is why wasn't he busted on the spot? To be honest, no, you don't have to file a report. The police have everything they would possibly need in that they have a complete video, play-by-play you know, play of what happened. Uh, however, in something like this, Chris Rock wasn't seriously beaten. The damages are going to be fairly light. Maybe a, he's pretty sore this morning. They could have arrested him, but I think they made a decision here not to. And if if they take him to court and he fights this or whatever happens going forward, again, they have a video, but they don't have the victim speaking out in the way that they prefer to have when they do assault and battery cases. Matt, you were saying earlier there were some serious discussions about what to do within that 20 minute span before he won Best Actor. Can you shed any more light on those? I mean, Will Smith's publicist was was down there in the commercial breaks, I think every break talking to him. And then he was off to the side with with Denzel. And, and but for the Academy that that kind of thought, can we, because he was expected to win, right? They, they Everybody thought he was going to get Best Actor, and then he did. So they must have been thinking, it's going to go to him, and he's going to have to walk up there and, and give this speech. Yeah, and they were also thinking about the optics. I mean, Will Smith is not just, 
one of the most famous movie stars in the world. He's the, perhaps the most famous black movie star in the world. And there was some concern about the optics of, you know, escorting this very famous black man off stage. And I honestly, it was a, it was a lot of indecision. The Academy purposefully hires film producers to produce the Oscars each year. They don't hire experienced television producers to be the lead producer. So there wasn't anyone there in a position of authority to say, okay, this is what we should do right now. It was a lot of voices, and ultimately they decided to do nothing. Let's uh, bring uh, Brian Copeland into this discussion. As I mentioned, he's a comedian, an actor, and an author. Uh, Brian, uh, Kathy Griffin, uh, you know, I'm sure know what she tweeted. We just mentioned it before going into this segment that, you know, now people are going to probably at stand-ups, who's going to be the next, uh, uh, you know, Will Smith objecting to something that a stand-up comic might say to somebody in the audience, and they may be emboldened by what uh, Will Smith did last night in front of, I don't know, billions of potential uh, viewers. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, I, I agree with her. I agree with her 100%. I think that that's exactly what's what's what can potentially happen. Um, you can't go to a comedy show without somebody being offended by something, you know, not if the comic is any good. I mean, that's what it is that we do. We slaughter sacred cows. We go places that a lot of times we shouldn't go and somebody's bound to get offended. And it's, I mean, it's gotten to the point where there's so many comics now who won't even play colleges because the fact that college audiences are so sensitive that they boo and they hiss at, at the most benign things. So now this has crossed a line where if you have, uh, who was just described as one of the, the, the most popular, if not the most popular black movie star in the world able to engage in that kind of behavior with no repercussions whatsoever, that it's okay for Joe Schmo, who who has his girlfriend, uh, a joke made at his girlfriend's or his date's uh, expense by a comic, thinking it's okay to get up on stage and smack the comic in a club in Calabasas. All right, that's Brian Copeland there, comedian, author, and uh, actor based in the Bay Area, and he's sticking with us. Also, uh, Matt Bellany, co-founder of uh, Puck News and Rachel Fazay, and uh, attorney. Uh, th- thanks to, to you two, and, and Brian, we'll have more with you coming up. And we are continuing our discussion about, need I say more, what happened last night at the Oscars. Brian Copeland uh, back with us, also joined by Travis Andrews, Washington Post features writer, just wrote about the Oscars, focusing more on the celebrities and less on the movies. Uh, Brian, back to you to start us off. Last segment, uh, Mac from Puck News was saying part of the calculus for the Academy in that, you know, 20 minute span was about the optics. Uh, Will Smith, famous black man, how does it look to escort him out? Um, But also violence on live TV on stage, not great for optics either. I mean, take us through your thoughts on, on all that. Well, to be quite frank with you, um, as as an African-American man, when I watched that, my first reaction was anger, because the first thing that went through my mind is you just perpetuated the stereotype that black men are violent and classless, and you did that in front of a worldwide audience. And every African-American man in this country has had the experience of getting on an elevator where a woman will clutch her purse or, or crossing the street at a crosswalk and hearing car doors lock because of the stereotype that black men are violent. And, and as hard as we have worked and as hard as the academy has worked to become more diverse, to, to engage in a behavior like that in that setting is reprehensible. And so my first reaction was, was, was anger. 
And what's, what's interesting is there are a lot of people uh, who are posting on my Facebook page, uh, African-American people and, and friends of mine who I've talked to, who have the same reaction, who are just angry that it, it, it makes... Uh, it makes us look bad, first of all. But aside from that, it just it, the, the fight for diversity at the Oscars now uh, is, is is something uh, that is not looked at, uh, perhaps by some, in as, as as positive a light as it was prior to this incident. Let, let me ask you this, Brian, and, and I, I hesitate because uh, I don't want it there to be moral equivalency for somebody mm-hmm. assaulting somebody as opposed to somebody making a bad joke. But as you know from going on social media, I'm sure, there are defenders of, of Will uh, Smith saying, well, you know, his wife was in, insulted. And, and I think his son actually uh, on Twitter said something to the effect of that's how we do it. Uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure what that means. But, but how do you interpret that? How do I interpret that's how we do it? Um, that uh, apparently his son and his family thinks that it's all right. Uh, the way that I would have handled it, the way that it should have been handled, you know, uh, with your wife being, if your wife was offended, uh, which she clearly was. I mean, if you look at the at the video, he uh, smiled or laughed at it in the beginning. And then you could tell she was upset and that she was hurt. You don't walk on stage and assault someone. You wait until the segment is over, until the show is over. And then you, then you in, directly engage the person backstage and say, hey, what you said wasn't okay. And I, I, I have never met Chris Rock, but I've got a friend who writes for him, a couple of friends who've written for him before, who say that he's just a nice guy and a sweetheart. And from what I'm, from, from what I'm told, my guess is, had it been handled that way, he would have been mortified that he had hurt her because they worked together before. What, what do you think of the? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut in. What do you think of the joke itself? I mean, was it? Oh, it was a, stupid. Yeah, was, it was it just, cross it was the line? Stupid, it was a stupid, dated joke. Um, you know, there's a question as to whether or not he was aware of her uh, condition, uh, her medical condition that's causing her to lose hair. I didn't know about it. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know about it. I, I'm, I, I don't follow her. Um, so I didn't, I didn't know about it. But regardless of that, whether he knew or not, it was just a stupid joke. And there have been stupid, offensive jokes at the Oscars Forever. And there will continue to be stupid offensive jokes at the Oscars, but that was just way out of line, you know, and if you're an A-list or if you're a celebrity who's there at the Academy Awards, expect to get a shot taken at you. I mean, that goes back to Bob Hope when he started hosting in the 40s doing that. Travis Andrews of Washington Post. OK, uh, you may as well weigh in. Everybody else is. <laughs> What's your take on last night? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Um you know, obviously, I think that uh, what he said about the moment, um, I think from a perspective I can speak to, which is the Oscars itself and, you know, what the Academy hoped to accomplish last night, which was, uh, you know, growing a viewership that will continue um, coming forward. You know, I think I think this was a really bad moment for the Academy. It's certainly obviously getting a lot of attention uh, right now and probably will for the rest of the week. But I think that it really overshadowed a lot of the work, uh, whether you liked it or not, that, you know, Will Packer and the Academy and ABC put into creating a, a kind of a new kind of broadcast. And uh, I think it's really unfortunate for, for the Academy and, and ABC that this moment uh, and the other you know films and, and everyone who was involved that, uh, that this moment is, is kind of going to overshadow everything. Well, right. This would have been a big thing and should have been for CODA, right? And the cast and the fact that it was uh, an Apple uh, streaming, you know, that, that they got best picture, the first streamer to do it. 
exactly. And, and you know, not even just that, like Questlove coming and uh, sort of suddenly having the, you know, unasked for role of getting the, the show back on track uh, rather than getting to celebrate his, his wonderful documentary. You know, it really everything that happened after that moment, I think people weren't paying attention to. And, and as you can tell now, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about movies. We're not talking about the show itself. Uh, and I think that's the case everywhere. And I think I think that's that's really unfortunate. Travis Andrews, Washington Post features writer, wrote about the Oscars um, in the paper today. And then Brian Copeland, uh, author, comedian, actor based up in the Bay Area. Thanks to you both. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felt. We've been bringing you the stories of regular people from Ukraine trying to make sense of the war. Uh, Ruslan is originally from uh, Donetsk in the Donbass region of uh, eastern Ukraine. He left in 2014 as the war with the Russian-backed separatists started there. And he says he literally got the last ticket on the train out. Ruslan then went to Kiev, where he recently left to head to safer areas, and he joins us now. Ruslan, thank you for taking the time uh, to be with us. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, uh, leaving your your home in the eastern part of Ukraine, where, of course, as you know all too well, there's been fighting for many years now. Uh, what has your journey, your personal journey, been like for you and your family? Well, I can definitely tell that it probably was one of the harsher experiences in my life. Because not only I had to leave my hometown where I had all my friends, all my family connections, pretty much everything I knew in life up to this point, um, I had to switch it all for a completely new environment. And it's not a friendly environment in that. I mean, I faced plenty of discrimination by my fellow Ukrainians, unfortunately, and I can blame them for that because people from my region were known for being, well, crooks. For, uh, for scamming people, there were a lot of apartment scams happening at that time. And it was even hard to find a new accommodation for myself for quite some time. And then now you've had to do it all again, right? So 2014, when that started, and then moving to, what, Kiev, and then now things aren't safe there, or so you had to, you had to go again. What are you trying to do now? What's, what's kind of the, the game plan as, as, as we watch what's happening? Well, in a very uh, terrible way that I honestly would not wish to anybody to experience, especially my, my fellow citizens, um, that recent escalation of the war with Russia actually brought the nation together. So no longer am I viewed as uh, some sort of a third class citizen, but rather people are actually sympathetic because all of a sudden they realized what I had to go through alongside with two million of Ukrainians that also lost their homes back in the day. And so... Uh, now I'm just doing my best, you know, out of the bad situation that the whole country is in by uh, by volunteering, by using my language knowledge to get the word out there, by translating content, by connecting the volunteer groups with charitable organizations abroad to help get the supplies, humanitarian aid, the expertise and uh, the word out. What do you think of the suggestion, which I'm sure you know is out there, that that one way, perhaps, that this uh, war will come to an end is with uh, the Donbass region, where you're from, right, uh, would be recognized by the uh, Ukrainian government as a separate sovereign area, a Russian, mostly Russian-speaking area, uh, and that might end this conflict if Russia were to agree to that. What do you think about that? 
Well, you know, having studied the history of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before and being from the actual region that historically has been known to have more ethnic Russians than probably any other region of Ukraine, I can tell you that um, Russia is not going to stop if they somehow get Donbass from Ukraine, which I sure hope they won't because A, our president, thankfully, is never going to allow that, and B, um, those Ukrainians that still reside in the Ukrainian-controlled part of Donbass, they will also not go for the region to be seceded to Russia. So uh, the problem with Donbass is that it's kind of like a chicken bone that's stuck in the throat of Russia at the moment, and they will either break it by, by taking it into themselves, becoming part of the Russian Federation, which is not going to end well for Russia as a country, or they'll have to spit it out and uh, Donbass will be back under Ukrainian control. Do you think it's easy for people on the outside to forget when they think about the war in Ukraine? They say, oh, it's, it's been going on for, for uh, a month now. Well, no, it's been going on for eight years, right? 2014 is when you left. So people who are just now realizing because Russia is you know, doing what they're doing, but there's been fighting for, for years and years and years affecting people. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's it's sad to see that that's what it takes to kind of cut through the noise of the uh, modern environment that we all live in, to kind of have the suffering and destruction and death to be elevated to such a level where it no longer can be ignored by the, you know, Western or Eastern civilizations of that. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And as far as I can tell, all things considered, Ukrainians are putting up hell of a fight. And I do hope that we'll continue getting the support of our Western allies. And, uh, you know, we are on our land. We're protecting our ho- our homes, our families. And uh, Russian fascists are going to get what they deserve. Tell us a little bit about your, your family. Uh, what What is it like? And are they all with you or are some still in the Donbass region or elsewhere? Well, when I left, uh, when I left Donetsk, unfortunately, uh, my mom at the time also left to another part of the of the country. And my dad was left all alone and he died because I guess it was some sort of a heart issue or a combination of a heart issue and a mental issue. So I lost my father back then. And uh, my mom came back, I think, a couple months afterwards. And she has been living there ever since. But actually, recently, with uh, the recent announcements by the so-called leaders of the uh, separatists in the Lugansk region, which is close to Donetsk, uh, them intending to do some sort of a fake referendum just like they did in Crimea back in the day and connect themselves to Russia, she's actually plan- planning to move out and uh, situate herself somewhere in uh, in Europe. And is she free to do that? Well, what's kind of daily life like in those regions? Because again, if we, if we do an outside looking in perspective, I think a lot of people think, okay, those places, you know, maybe they do want to leave or there's fighting, but there's a, a group of people that definitely wants to go. But you're saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. This is again, Russia trying to take control of a place and install their own people. That's, that's unfortunately exactly what's happening. Because even in Crimea, for example, and I'm not sure if this is being even communicated to the Western media right now, um, Russians are preventing those who reside in Crimea, whether the, the, those are the people that lived there before 2014 in the annexation or the ones that moved after, they're preventing them from moving out because people are actually panicking and they're selling their homes at a superior discount for like ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. You can get a you know frontline apartment with a seaside view and everything. And uh, in Donetsk, they were so desperate to get at least some sort of an economy going on that they recently, all of a sudden, after four years of pretty much 
converting the whole economy into rubles, they are allowing Grivnas, Ukrainian currency, to be used alongside the rubles. That just shows how bad the situation is. And uh, with all everything that's happening in Russia itself, I don't see how things can improve. It can only go you know, further downhill from there. Ruslan, how old are you and do you have kids? No, I don't. And I'm actually going to be 31 this, uh, this April. Okay. And what do you do for a living? You mentioned that you're doing a lot of translating. Is that your profession? Uh, not exactly. It's just something that I find my uh, language skills to have the most impact right now, just because, you know, there's a huge communication gap between uh, Ukrainian and Russian language and what's been uh, consumed in the West, mostly in English. I guess my main occupation right now would be a, that of a copywriter. And then uh, as a part-time thing that obviously is not getting paid because it's a volunteer activity. I'm uh, helping to connect Ukrainian uh, charitable and nonprofit organizations that are doing things on the ground with the Western charitable organizations that are looking to do some actual impact, unlike, you know, those larger ones like Red Cross. Inspiring to see so many people trying to do something, especially those who are staying. We talk about how many refugees uh, there are, and for good reason. People need to go to where they need to be safe. But so many people have stayed, and some have told us that express reason is just to be there so they can do something. So they're, you know, they're someone still in the city. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that gives me great hope and uh, belief that, you know, Russians are going to break their teeth against Ukraine is that uh, the males that could have left the country, like I could have left actually in the first day, but uh, I decided to stay because I realized that, you know, I lost my home once and I'm not going to allow those dogs to steal my home again from me. And, uh, you know, Ukrainian men right now are literally fighting for their lives, for their houses, for everything they hold dear. And I don't think there's a force of nature out there in this world that can that can break this resistance. Ruslan, do you have or did you have uh, ethnic Russian friends uh, in the either the Donbass region or perhaps even in Russia? Many Ukrainians, of course, do, as you know. Well, somehow I've been fortunate enough, and I I say this not with a easy heart, um, to have friends that quickly realized, just as I did, that um, having a Russian background, we kind of need to work twice as hard to prove to ourselves, first and foremost, that we're not like them, we're better than them, and uh, we're more decent human beings. And then, obviously, having to go through the hardship of reintegrating ourselves into the Ukrainian society. And uh, sadly, I do have friends that went to serve in the military to defend uh, the Ukrainian side of Donbass, and they perished in the line of duty and I have tremendous amount of respect for them. And, you know, every year I, um, I go to visit their graveyards and um, I can say that, you know, they probably were twice as Ukrainian as uh, most people give them credit for. Yeah. What does it say about your friends that despite, you know, facing the adversity of coming back and they still signed up to fight for the country that was discriminating against them in some aspects. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it truly is. And uh, they will be forever remembered as heroes of Ukraine who put their lives in exchange for uh, for the freedom of our country. How do you think this is going to all end? Well, um, unfortunately, you know, the price for freedom is always paid in the blood and lives of those who are fighting for it. And uh, for 30 years of independence, Ukraine has been lucky enough not to shed that much blood. To, uh, to truly get the freedom and democracy that we're trying to establish in the country. 
And now with this uh, full-blown war happening and Russia acting as a clear, aggressive fascist state that doesn't perceive Ukraine or Ukrainian culture as something that can exist outside of the Russian sphere of influence, uh, this is the chance of a nation to actually forge itself and finally become, you know, become of age in a way. It's a, it's a, it's a crucible by fire of sorts. Do you think this actually will end up breaking through to the Russian people who either don't believe what's happening is happening or aren't shown what's actually happening? Well, you know, in World War II, eventually things were brought through to, uh, to the citizens of Nazi Germany. And uh, with the way that the media operates nowadays, uh, with many more sources of information readily available, regardless of where you are on the planet Earth, um, and even with the Russian state taking such drastic and desperate measures as to block and uh, prohibit under the you know, threat of 15 years of imprisonment, the, um, the Russian media from publishing and distributing the interview of our president with Russian journalists, that just you know, speaks volumes. Their, their outdated KGB approaches clearly no longer work in the modern world. And I think it's only a matter of time unless... Um, until the truth actually comes out. And and you mentioned uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky. Are, are you surprised by the path that, that he ended up through no choice of his own, really, uh, going, you know, from from a, you know, basically a television comedian to an elected official, but now somebody who is admired uh, in much of the, the at least Western world? With his background being of an actor and a showman, I can definitely tell that funnily enough, he actually did make the choice of uh, of becoming the leader of the nation right now when nation needed such a leader the most, because probably he realized that it's truly the chance that he gets. It's a lottery ticket of sorts to uh, to truly write his legacy and become the symbol that the nation needed uh, or just be swiped away. And, you know, nobody's ever going to remember him if he were not to stand up to this tremendous responsibility. And I got to say that I never was a supporter of his. I didn't vote for him. And uh, this trial clearly shows that, well, (laughs) he does have balls. And uh, whatever he may have done as a politician before that, I definitely got to give him prompts for uh, how he stands up to to the challenge right now. And those of us in the West, what do you want people to know? Um, I think the main message should be that, you know, Ukraine is not part of Russia. Ukrainian is not like Russian language. We do have our distinct culture. We are a distinct separate nation. And right now we unfortunately have to carry the burden of responsibility and freedom and democracy for the Western world fighting against the oppressive fascist and frankly just, uh, Henocidal uh, Russian regime. And uh, as long as we have the support of our allies, and as long as the Western world sees Russia for what it is and does not um, turn down the pressure in terms of sanctions and all the financial consequences of this absolutely ludicrous war effort of Putin and has KGB cronies, I think uh, Ukraine will prevail. So, guys, don't forget us. We're here fighting the democracy fight for the whole planet right now.
Ruslan, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, originally from Donetsk in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, uh, left there in 2014, went to Kiev. Stay safe. We wish you the best, uh, and we hope that uh, you and your mom can get closer, that she gets out of there as well and closer to you. Thanks again for, for speaking with us. More in-depth is on the way. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The war in Ukraine rages on as peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. Those are set to resume tomorrow. Ukraine's president says his country could declare neutrality to secure peace. Now, it can't come soon enough for people in the country. Rockets hitting the outskirts of the western city of Lviv over the weekend. And that is where we find journalist Phil Itner. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So uh, I know when we talked, what was it, about a week ago, and the Russians were... We're bombing, we're shelling uh, areas much closer to where you are now, Lviv, and I guess the Polish border. Is it getting even closer still? Well, yeah. I mean, over the weekend, uh, we got hit directly uh, in the center of town. There was a fuel depot that got struck by what appeared to be a cruise missile, and then there was a second strike that was uh, on the outskirts of town. Most of the strikes that have been happening in the western part of the country have been uh, locations that are a little bit farther afield than the uh, city proper, uh, but this uh, this uh, strike on Saturday uh, was was right in the middle of town, and there was a huge black plume of smoke uh, drifting over the city, and uh, you know people for the first time had the war come right to their doorstep, so they. And there was a there remained a sense of resolve here, but um, it was just a little too close for comfort. What is the read on how things are going overall? Because there was a sense again, this was late last week that oh look, the Russians are kind of falling back. Ukrainians in some areas are retaking uh, towns. They've they've got them on the uh, they've got them on the run. But then others were saying, well, no, this is in the Russian playbook. If you don't get exactly what you want, you do fall back a little bit. You dig in, and then you just start shelling and shelling and shelling to to break everybody's resolve. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what's happening around the capital of Kiev is that those battle lines are being, uh, there's an ebb and a flow going on there. Uh, the, the Ukrainians have been quite successful in some counter offensives, but uh, the Russians have also regained some territory as well. So those battle lines are, are pretty fluid at the moment. Although we do hear from Moscow and the military leaders in the Russian armed forces as saying that their intention actually is now uh, not so much some of these other cities uh, around the country or to try and split the country or to try and uh, do it, denazify the country. They've, 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 gone back from, they've gone down from a list of about seven objectives that they said they had at the beginning, and they're now saying that really what they want to do is liberate those eastern separatist uh, areas in the east of the country and then presumably build that land bridge, uh, a corridor that would connect them to the uh, peninsula of Crimea where they had the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, of course, the major uh, uh, the, the thorn in the side of, of doing that, though, is the city of Mariupol, which, while it has had an awful lot of civilians evacuated from it, there's still a lot of civilians there. And most notably, there are still three, three battle groups in there that are vowing to stay and fight as long as they can. So, as you know, the uh, Ukrainians are saying, Ukrainian government, I believe, is saying that they believe uh, the goal of the Russians now would be to create a situation analogous to North and South Korea uh, by dividing the country. But if they were to do that, wouldn't 
it deprive uh, what would then be, I guess, the independent uh, Ukrainian government and country access to very vital areas of the country needed for its own economic survival? It, it would indeed, and that's a real uh, serious risk here. And the idea is, is that they would split it along the the Dnieper River, which runs pretty much right in the middle of the country and ends down near the port city of Odessa. And um, and that's where the, the threat would be for the Ukrainians. If the Russians are able to take Odessa, and I, I have to ha- hasten to add that that's a big if, that's a fortified city, and, and the Ukrainians are going to fight tooth and nail for it. But if they are able to take that port city, they will, in effect, uh, have taken the entire uh, Ukrainian seaboard. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump uh, from Odessa to a little breakaway republic where Russia already has a base in the eastern European uh, country of Moldova. So they would, in effect, cut off the Ukrainians from the sea, and uh, they would not be able to export uh, using those sea lanes. So it would be a huge blow, and a rump Ukraine would be created, uh, and presumably the idea for the Russians would be just let it rot on the vine. Did the NATO meeting, did the president's comments have any big ripple effects there, or are we still in this position where it's like, look, send us weapons. You call whatever Putin you want to call him, but we need stuff here and we need it now. Yeah, they're still calling. That's their primary That's their primary uh, uh, request right now. I mean, they, of course, they were happy to, to hear some of the words that were coming out of uh, uh, President Biden's visit to Poland. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they have been saying that Putin is a, is a thug and a war criminal for quite some time now. So uh, that only just reinforced what they've already been saying. But they are saying that they are going through so much munitions that they are at a point where they're going to start running out of even like, uh, you know, just your basic artillery shells. And, and while they have been asking for anti-tank and anti-aircraft, it's getting to the point where they're burning through such uh, uh, so much of their stockpiles that they're starting to ask for just, you know, bullets and artillery shells. So the, the, the Ukrainians have been really uh, using up what they have, and they're, they're getting to a point where they're going to start asking for not those smart weapons, not the high-technology weapons, but just stockpiles of, uh, of ordnance. Phil Itner there for us in Lviv. Phil, thanks. Well, older people worried about their COVID booster shot wearing off could have their concerns eased. Washington Post saying the FDA is set to authorize a second COVID booster for anyone uh, 50 and older. Could happen as soon as tomorrow. Includes the Pfizer and Moderna shots. Comes as the BA2 subvariant of Omicron is causing a spike in infections in Europe and in China. Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology, the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health is with us. Uh, Dr. Brewer, thank you. So is there evidence, is there data that a fourth dose is needed? And if so, for what? Just to prevent infections or are we seeing a wearing off in the efficacy, you know, in the worst case scenarios, hospitalizations and uh, death? So there are two sets of data available right now, Mike and Charles. The first is a study of Israeli healthcare workers where they looked at over a thousand healthcare workers, about 275 who had gotten a fourth dose or a second booster. And what they found was that in fact, in giving young healthy healthcare workers a fourth dose, you could increase the level of neutralizing antibodies about nine, tenfold including to the Omicron variant. So that's one set of data. The second set of data, which are not in published form yet, it's only preprint and not peer-reviewed, is a study out of Israel where they looked at almost 570,000 people over the age of 60 
and about, uh, I believe it's about 250,000 of them got a second booster. And what they found was a 78% uh, reduction in deaths. So these are actual deaths over about a 40-day period, but the median age of this group was 73 years old. Uh, here's the thing that concerns me, doctor. I, I remember we had some folks on doctors last week and the week before, and we were saying, well, you know, the, the data really isn't out there yet. And how do we know that these are uh, if there is a fourth booster available, fourth dose available, whether it's really needed? And I remember we were told, well, you know, before any pronouncements are made, before anything is changed, there's going to be a review by both the advisory committees to the FDA and the CDC, and they're not going to fool around. They will make their decision based on simply science. But as I understand it, in this particular case, those committees are being circumvented. They are not looking over the material. So how is this decision being made and why now? I, I would assume that they will look at the data. I'd be very surprised if they circumvented those committees. But but you're right. Other factors go into play besides science. So, for example, in the United States, when we approved the third booster and the discussion for the fourth booster, they're talking about 50 and older. And there are no data to say that you should boost at 50 as opposed to 60. So the, the data from Israel are starting at 60 and older. And as I said, the median age was 73. So, so factors besides science go into these decisions, but I'm not aware that they're actually circumventing the decision-making process. Could they just be trying to legitimize what some people are doing already? I mean, lots of us know people who have a forced dose. They've gone out and just went to the pharmacy. Hey, give me another. Okay, sure. I, th I think there are two sets of factors going on. One is I think they're trying to be consistent with what they recommended before. So if you remember back to the third booster, they said 50 and older. And so I think that's part of it. I think the second factor is the recognition that certain high-risk groups, particularly uh, minorities, people of color who have higher rates of comorbid disease also have lower lifespans. And so that may be trying to target a group that is not quite as old, but still at higher risk for serious disease were they to get COVID. So what happens if somebody goes out and, I don't know, next week they get the uh, the extra booster, which is the same formulation as is currently uh, in existence for both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And then since both companies are already at work and testing uh, an Omicron variant uh, tweaked vaccine, uh, and if those come on the market in two or three months, so then what do people do? Go and get another shot? Well, that's entirely possible, and that's why I probably would not rush to get a fourth dose unless I were in a, a high-risk group. And so for the vast majority of people who are otherwise healthy, who are not immunocompromised, not in settings where they're likely to get serious disease, particularly if they've already been vaccinated and boosted, I think waiting until we know if there's going to be an Omicron-specific vaccine available is reasonable. Crystal ball question. The uh, other people who are not uh, 50 and above, do you think come winter time, whether it's the same formula or the next generation one, whatever it is, that it's probably shots again for everybody else by the time we get into to the colder months? 
I think that's highly likely given that this is a respiratory virus. We know that they tend to spike in the cold and winter months. And we know that immunity weighs, per, wanes, particularly neutralizing antibodies over a course of about four to five months. So I would not be surprised if a booster is recommended for the general population come the late fall, early winter. But what what is the goal now of the vaccines? Initially, we were all told the goal was to prevent serious illness. Now it does seem as if the goal is to prevent people from getting cold-like symptoms. Well, it, it's still both, right? So, so remember that we're still having upwards of 1,000 people a day across the country Die, die of COVID. I think right now it's it's running about seven seven hundred and fifty, and so so that's not zero. And there's still, I believe, twenty two deaths uh, on average a day in California or or Los Angeles. And and we're not really we're at the tail end of the respiratory virus sim, uh, season. So there's there's still serious disease out there, but you're right. The primary goal is preventing that serious disease, hospitalization, and death. Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Dr. Brewer, thanks. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.